0: Good. So we're in the second of our uh, series, which we're looking at over these summer months, um, June, July, in the book of Philippians. We're spending eight weeks looking at what is basically a a 2,000-year-old piece of mail. From the Apostle Paul to a church in a a town called Philippi, which was in the north of Greece, one of the churches that he he planted. Um, And we've called this series True Joy. Because as you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, Paul's joy just spills over. He, he, he can't contain his, his affection and his love for the Philippians. It's a, it's a letter that's, that's full of warmth and, and, and joy. Um, Paul says himself, he's found the secret of being content, of being joyful, whatever his situation. Now, we don't usually use the word joy in our kind of normal language. We tend to, to use the word happiness more. When we do think of joy, we, we kind of mean happiness plus it's like a feeling of intense pleasure or, or delight. So you might say, I was overjoyed when I received that news about uh, being pregnant or passing the exams or getting that job. It's kind of like happiness plus. And we were thinking last week about how um, being happy is something that we value really highly in our culture. Being happy and personal happiness is what a lot of people live for. It's the, the basis on which we make our decisions. We want to be happy, but the problem is with happiness, it's elusive. And one of the main problems with happiness is that it's so dependent on our circumstances, on what's happening around us. Um, We know that's true, just for example, when the sun's shining. Everyone feels happier, don't they? We've seen that this week. And when it's rainy and it's it's, uh, dull and gloomy, everyone feels a bit lower. Our happiness, our feelings, our moods are so dependent on our circumstances. I know this is true for me. How I feel on any given day is very strongly related to things like how much sleep I've had, how hungry I am. How productive I feel like I've been that day. Have I got loads done or am I feeling like I'm kind of wading through treacle? How my relationships are going? Are we getting on well with, with the wife and children? Are we arguing as there tension? Whether there's someone I love in my life that's having a hard time. Whether I've got something in the future that I'm anxious about. All these things are situations that really affect how I feel. Maybe you're the same. And it's kind of annoying, isn't it? That our happiness, our feelings can be so dependent on things that are just outside of our control. You could be having a great day and then you hear a piece of news or someone says something to you and it's whack. It's like someone's hit you in the face and the rest of the day's a write-off. We're so dependent for our happiness on our situation. And it would be great, wouldn't it, if we could be happy all the time? Be wonderful. But that slogan, don't worry, be happy just feels a bit trite, doesn't it? Because we can't be happy all the time because life isn't always good. We can't be happy all the time. But but there is such a thing as a feeling of delight, a feeling of pleasure, that is not dependent on our circumstances, that's not dependent on our mood, it's not dependent on what's happening around us. And that's what the Bible defines as joy. What the Bible says is joy is different to what the world says is joy. The B- joy, according to the Bible, is a feeling of, of pleasure, a feeling of happiness, but that is, it's from the Holy Spirit. And it's a feeling in our soul. It's a feeling that goes deeper than just what's happening around us, are deeper than just our circumstances or our, our mood. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could have that kind of joy in our lives that doesn't depend on what's going on? You can hear that piece of news, you can have that bad day, and but deep down there's still that feeling of everything's right and there's something to hold on to and there's hope and there's peace, there's joy. The Apostle Paul had found the secret of that kind of joy. He'd found the secret of true Joy and in the passage we 're looking at this afternoon we 're going to find that secret we 're going to see what that secret is to that kind of true, deep, and lasting joy so if you 've got your Bibles, please open them up to page nine hundred and eighty, which is paul 's letter to the Philippians in the near the end of the Bible in the new testament so um, last week, we were looking at the first eleven verses of paul 's letter, and that 's basically the opening greetings where he 's sort of sharing how he feels about them and saying what he's praying for them. This week we're looking at the next sort of chunk, which is verses 12 through to 26. And this is still really part of Paul's introduction. So he's sharing uh, news, he's sharing kind of updates, um, what he's, what's going on in his life. Um, so the Philippian church has, has heard that he's in prison. And reading between the lines, the Philippian church is a little bit discouraged about what's happening to Paul. So he's writing this letter to, to reassure them. So he shares news of what's happening. So what we're going to do is is first we'll look through the passage and we'll see what we learn about Paul's situation. And specifically, we're going to find out there are three trials that he's facing in in, in prison there in Rome. And second, we'll look through the passage again and see how Paul responds to those trials. And we'll see what we can learn from that about joy. So, first of all, the first trial that Paul refers to is in verses 12 through to 14, and it's the trial of physical limitations. So Paul's writing this letter from prison, there in verse 13, and in verse 14, he uses the word imprisonment to describe what's happening. So he's, he's in chains. Now his imprisonment has probably lasted for about four years. It started back when he was in Jerusalem. He was arrested um, and beaten and put in prison on trial. There was a plot against his life, so he was transferred to another prison in a town not far away. Stayed there for about two years. Then he appealed to Rome, so he travelled on a ship all the way um, through the Mediterranean and then found um, himself up in Rome in a jail where he stayed for another two years. So in in Rome, he's in house arrest. He's watched by a guard. And for Paul, I can't imagine, this must have been incredibly frustrating. Four years locked up, unable to move. Because Paul's passion, Paul's heartbeat, his mission was to share the good news of Jesus with people who had never heard of him. His passion was to travel to new places. He'd to just to go to, to places where Jesus hadn't been preached and share the gospel. So imagine how frustrating it would have been for Paul to go four years without being able to, to go where he wanted to go. He had all these plans. He was going to go to Spain. He was going to go all over and, and share the, the gospel. Incredibly frustrating, physical limitation. And, and maybe you know this frustration Maybe you know the frustration of physical limitations. Maybe you, you suffer from kind, some kind of handicap, whether that's uh, ill health, ongoing persistent ill health, or ongoing persistent injury. And maybe you know the feeling of being limited by your body. Maybe you know the feeling of being limited just by old age and the deterioration of your faculties. Maybe you know the frustration or the limitation of not just physical ill health, but mental ill health, depression, or crippling anxiety or ongoing grief and it just feels like those four walls that you're trapped in. you can't get out you just feel limited by your by your mind maybe you're a carer for someone who suffers from physical or mental ill health and you know the feeling of the limitations that come from that maybe you're a young mom it's a different kind of limitation but even still you look around and you see other people doing things having freedom that you just don't have you're limited. Maybe you're in a job that you would love to be out of. It feels like a bit of a dead end, but you're, you're kind of trapped. There's nothing else to go to. You need the money. Maybe you know physical limitations and you're, you're, you're relating to that right now. That's what Paul was going through in prison. Second trial that Paul was going through, we see in verses 15 to 18. And that's the trial of personal attack. So Paul's arrival in Rome was, on the whole, an encouragement to the church there. He says, most of the brothers... Um, in verse 14, were, were more confident in the law because he arrived to, to preach Jesus. But, verse 15, there were some who preached Jesus from envy and rivalry. So we don't have details about what they were saying or how they were saying it. Um, Paul doesn't give us those details, but what we do know is their motives for doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying. And Paul tells us those in verse 17. He says, the former proclaimed Christ Out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So these people have got Paul in their sights. It's very personal. They've heard that Paul's in prison, and they don't like him as an individual. They don't like him. And they've they've decided that they're just going to do whatever they can to make life difficult for him. We don't know how they did it, we don't know what they said, but we know it hurt him, and we know it was an affliction for him. It's a very personal attack. And that must have been really hard for Paul. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was just obeying God, just obeying God's call on his life. And there he was, and people were attacking him. And it must have been even harder because of the people who were doing it. They weren't just anybody. They were people in the church. They were Christians that were attacking Paul. It must have been really hard. And maybe you know what that's like too. Maybe you're carrying the scars, even today, of personal attack. People in your life that have just decided for whatever reason that they they don't like you and they've set out to do whatever they can to make life difficult for you. Maybe they're scars from a long time ago, perhaps bullying in the playground. Scars from more recently, even in in the workplace. Maybe just being frozen out. People deciding to spread rumours about you. Whatever it is, whether it's in the playground or the workplace, whether it's at the school day, even if it's in the church, sadly it happens. It's incredibly hard when people get you in their sights and they decide, I want to make life difficult for that person. Maybe you know what that's like. It hurts. That's Paul's second trial. His third trial we see in verses 19 through to 26. And this is the trial of of possible suffering. So the reason that Paul's in prison in Rome is because he's awaiting trial. That's the whole reason he was there. And he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. So he's there. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, he he might be freed, Um, he might be put on trial and put to death. It could all depend on how the judge is feeling on that particular day. There's a lot of uncertainty around his situation. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Well, maybe you've um, read this passage, perhaps you looked at it in life groups this week, and maybe as I say that, you're thinking, well, hold on, it seems like he does know what's going to happen to him. In verse 19, have a look in your Bibles, he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance this being what's happening to him, is his imprisonment. So you say, well, it sounds like he does know what's going to happen to him. And some people take that word deliverance to mean release from imprisonment. I think actually it doesn't mean that. I think from the meaning of the actual word and the context, what Paul's referring to is is the final day of judgment, where he stands before Jesus. And he says, I know what's, what's happened to me is going to turn out for, for my deliverance on that day. I think he, he means that because of what he says in verse 20. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed on that day when he stands before Jesus, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. So he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He might live, he might die. There's real uncertainty about what's going to happen, and that's hard. It's hard to, to not know, especially when there's a very real possibility that what might happen to you might involve physical suffering, quite bad physical suffering, painful suffering. Now, I think this trial is perhaps a bit harder for us to relate to. Uh, We don't, presumably, live in fear of uh, being put to death for our faith imminently in a few weeks' time. That's not something we have to deal with in this country. There are Christians across the world that do have to deal with that. It's very real for others uh, in the world, but not so much for us. But maybe in different ways, you might fear the very real possibility of any moment experiencing suffering for being a Christian. Maybe you, you might fear Rejection, or exclusion, or being mocked when people know where you stand. It's not the same as death, but it's kind of a death in a way, a death of your own comfort, a death of your reputation, maybe. And in a way, we all face at any moment the potential of great hardship in our lives. We're all inches away from eternity, aren't we? I think that every time I cross the road. We're inches away from eternity. At any moment, someone that we love could be taken from us at any moment we could be diagnosed with that that illness and hear those those dreaded words cancer uh, at any moment we could lose our source of income and face a big bill and be looking at the over the precipice of financial crisis at any moment this could happen to us we're all in a way facing the possibility of of suffering all the time and maybe anxiety about that is hard and it, it's a burden for you. it's a trial it was certainly a trial for Paul he didn't know what was going to happen to him So all these things Paul's facing. He's there in prison. He's facing his physical limitation. He's facing personal attack. He's facing the possibility of very real suffering. So let's have a look now. Let's read the passage and see how he responds to those situations. And as we do that, we're going to see some really um, important insights into how Paul finds this joy that we're that we're looking for. So let's have a read. First of all, how does Paul respond to his physical limitation to being in prison? Let's read verses twelve to fourteen. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold. To speak the word without fear. Striking, isn't it? Paul's response. It's striking to me how little he says about his circumstances. How little he says about prison. I think if it was me and I was writing a prayer letter to a group of supporters who knew that I was in prison and were feeling discouraged, I would say something like, yes, it's hard. Yes, the chains dig into my ankles every time I try to move. Yes, the food's not great. But it's okay, don't worry. Uh, And and thanks for your gift. And you know, if you'd like to send another one, that would be really appreciated. Something like that. But Paul doesn't mention anything about his situation. He, he describes it in five words. What has happened to me? What has happened to me? And what he wants them to know about what's happened to him is that it's served to advance the gospel, that it's turned out for good. That's what he wants them to know. All this stuff, don't worry about it. The main thing is the gospel is advancing. So the guard that are looking after him, that are watching over him in his house arrest, they would have been on a kind of rotor system. So every time there's a new guard, Paul thinks, great, I get to speak to them about Jesus. Before long, the guards are rotating. Everyone in the whole palace guard of, of Caesar has heard that he's in chains for Christ, has heard the gospel. Because he's in prison, the, the church in Rome have got confidence. And they're then preaching with, with more uh, boldness and, and less fear because of what's happening to Paul. And he thinks, great, great. It doesn't matter what's happening to me because Jesus is being preached and that's what matters to me, so I can rejoice. Now, That's not our instinctive reaction, is it? When we face physical limitations of the kinds that I've been talking about, when we face those in our lives, we tend to feel sorry for ourselves. We tend to want sympathy. And perhaps when we don't get the sympathy that we want, we tend to get bitter. Now, limitations are hard, there's no doubt about it. Physical limitations are incredibly difficult and they are a trial. But when we respond to them in self-pity... That's a response which has self at the centre. And Paul says there's no joy there. As long as your self is at the centre of your life, there's, there's no joy. You might say, well, that's just not possible. You don't understand my situation. But Paul was suffering physical limitations that probably we will know, uh, never know anything about. None of us are likely to be in prison for four years for our faith. And Paul shows us it is possible. It is possible. Because Paul has Jesus at the centre of his priorities, at the centre of his values. And as a result, he doesn't think about himself. And as a result, he sees his trial as an opportunity. He thinks, great, I can preach. And he trusts that God's put him there for a reason. And as a result, he has joy. So what about Paul's response to the attacks against him, to, to the personal attacks? Let's have a read how Paul responds to those from verse 15. Verse 15. Again, I think it's striking what Paul doesn't say in this situation. He doesn't give details about what they're saying about him and he doesn't rush to his own defence. Again, I think if it was me in that situation and I was in prison writing a prayer letter to my supporters and people have been saying these things about me, spreading rumours, making malicious comments, trying to undermine me in some way, I would have sort of slipped in subtly what they were saying and then been very clear about why it wasn't true. I'd be worried that the people I'm writing to are going to hear about the rumours. I'd be worried they're going to believe them. So I want to defend myself. I want to say, look, whatever they, what you're hearing about me, it's not true. My motives are good, whatever. But Paul doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't even mention what they're saying. He doesn't try and defend himself. All he says is, what then? Only that in every way, whether their motives are good or bad, Jesus is being preached, and therefore I can rejoice. Again, maybe you're experiencing these kind of personal attacks that I've been talking about right now maybe you know the the experience and you're relating to the experience of someone having it in for you and someone trying to have a go at you and make life difficult for you I think our instincts in those situations are normally either to defend ourselves or to to play the victim and to make a big deal of how hard our situation is to try and uh, show up what the person is doing is wrong it's interesting, Paul doesn't do that either he doesn't defend himself, he doesn't play the victim either he just doesn't mention himself because actually both of those responses, defending ourselves, playing the victim, they're responses again that have ourselves at the centre. And Paul doesn't do that because he's not concerned about himself. He, he's kind of abandoned himself from his life. He's just concerned about Jesus and that's why he's able to rejoice. He's able to rejoice that Jesus is being preached, whatever these people are saying about him. Because he's just not concerned about himself. So what about the third trial? How does Paul respond to the the uncertainty of his situation and the possible suffering he might face? Um, Let's have a look from from the second half of verse 18. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body whether by life or by death. So he says, whatever happens to me, whether I live or die, I've got confidence because I know you're praying for me and because I know the spirit of Jesus is going to be helping me, I've got confidence that what's happened is going to turn out okay because whether I live or die, whether I stand trial or not, I've got confidence Jesus will be honoured, whether it's through being delivered or through standing at trial and unashamedly confessing Jesus before the Roman court. Whatever happens, Jesus will be honoured and therefore I can rejoice. And then he goes on in the second half to give an amazing insight into how he feels about his life and his death. And this is really um, amazing. From verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul's kind of setting up this dilemma: Should I live or? Should I die? It feels a bit weird to us. And it is kind of artificial because he doesn't really have a choice what's going to happen to him. But he's setting it up in this way and presenting it in this way to make a point. And he's making a point about how he's feeling about the two possibilities. Okay, so he's setting up this, this dilemma. And the, the reasons that he gives for wanting to live and wanting to die show, really re- reveal, clearly, his priorities in, in life. So the reason he wants to live is to serve Jesus. He wants to live because it means that he'll be fruitful and he'll be able to see the Philippians again and serve them and and encourage them in their faith. And the reason he wants to die is to go and be with Jesus. Can you see that both of his motivations, either way, living to serve, dying to be with, is all about Jesus. His priorities, his values are completely centered on Jesus and not on himself. And again, I think this is quite unlike our natural response when we think about the possibility of of experiencing suffering or hardship in the future um i think when we think about possible suffering we think about the impact on ourselves more than the impact on others probably and it's not so likely that we respond in the way paul did we tend to think how's it going to impact my life it's going to be painful if if we're fearing something terrible happening to us the anxiety um, and the fear we feel comes from the impact on me how's it going to affect me Paul, on the other hand, thinks about the impact of what might happen on his ministry and on the gospel. And because his priority is for Jesus to be honoured, therefore he's able to rejoice because he's confident that's going to happen whatever. Because I know Jesus will be honoured, then I can rejoice. So I wonder if you notice a common theme here. Paul's got these trials he's facing in prison and he responds in these incredibly... Jesus centered ways that show his his priorities and his values. He he just comes across doesn't he in this in this passage as so concerned about Jesus and so concerned about the gospel that he doesn't really have any concern left for himself. That verse 21 that we read is actually a really good summary of Paul's sort of life motto. He says for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Jesus is so big for him living is just about jesus and then dying well that's that's gain and because he's so focused on jesus he just forgets himself and the trials that he's facing the imprisonment the attacks the uncertainty they just fade away and this is the secret this is the secret to true joy joy that lasts whatever we're going through whatever our circumstances true joy comes when we forget about ourselves. This is the secret, when our own interests and our own desires take a back seat in our lives. Now, our culture, the world around us that we're living in, says exactly the opposite. Paul says, true joy comes when you forget about yourself. The culture says, true joy comes when you focus on yourself. It's the opposite way around. We're told, well, hold on, forgetting yourself, that's a bit dangerous. Who's going to look out for you if you get about yourself? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. You need to look after number one. If you don't look after number one, who will, who, who will you be able to look after yourself? We're told that if you're feeling empty, it's because you're not loving yourself enough. That's what the psychology web pages and the self-help magazines will tell you. If you're feeling empty, it's because you're not loving yourself enough. The motto of our culture, if you like, is to live is me. And to die is the end. Right? So dying, there's nothing after death, so we've got to just make the most of life now. That's what our culture tells us. So live for yourself. Do what makes you happy. Go on that holiday. Buy yourself that treat because you deserve it. Do what makes you happy. The problem is, when we try it, and we try finding happiness from focusing on ourselves, it doesn't work. Because God made us, and when we live like that, that's the opposite of the way that he's made us to live. He made us to live forgetting ourselves, and that's where true joy is found. So when we turn it around, we don't find joy. We actually find emptiness. And you'll see that if you just go flick open the pages of a magazine or, or uh, see an, hear an interview with someone who looks like they've got it all. Um, someone who's famous and they've got wealth and they've got popularity. And if you ever catch an interview with someone who starts opening and baring their soul a bit, almost always what you find is, yeah, it's empty what I have, that the stuff that, that, that I was told would make me happy leaves me empty. Because what the world tells us isn't true. It's not true that joy comes from focusing on ourselves. True joy comes from forgetting ourselves. We, we kind of know it's not true, but we still buy into it, don't we? We still think happiness is found in the here and now. We still think, if I live with myself at the centre, that's the way to being happy and fulfilled. But it's not. It's not true. True joy comes from forgetting about ourselves. Maybe you're thinking, sounds great. Sounds great, but it's just too difficult. It just comes so naturally to us, doesn't it? To put ourselves first. To live with our own interests at the front of our mind. It's just too hard. Especially when you're in a trial. It's just, it's just too hard to not think about yourself. When ourselves just fill our minds so easily. But the the interesting thing in this passage, and this is why I love this passage, is that it doesn't seem difficult for Paul, does it? It, He's not forcing himself to forget about himself. He's not responding like this because he knows he should, because it's his duty. It doesn't seem difficult for him. So how? How is it possible? How can Paul live like this and have this joy and have this this self-forgetfulness and the freedom that comes from Self-forgetfulness, how can he have this and it not even be an effort? Well, we've only got half of Paul's secret. Because true joy comes not only when you forget about yourself. True joy comes when you forget about yourself because you're so full of Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Paul didn't forget about himself because he was trying to, because he was forcing himself to. He forgot about himself because he was so focused on the person of Jesus. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. It's a bit like, I think, when you love someone. Um, perhaps you can think of someone that you, that you love and care about. Maybe a parent, maybe a, a brother or sister, a husband or wife, or a child. When you love someone, you really care about them, and that person has a need. You're focused on that person and, and what their need is and how you can meet it, and you just forget about yourself. And it's not difficult, because you love that person and you're focused on them. I was uh, remembering the first time that I experienced a child being ill, being sick, um, we were on holiday, and Chloe was probably about two years old. And we put her down in the travel cot in an upstairs room, went right down downstairs, had our you know, our monitor and everything, like you do as first-time parents. Uh, and uh, at the end of the evening, we went upstairs, and, and I turned my uh, torch on on my phone to just check she was okay, looked in the cot, and she was lying there asleep with the, with the travel cot covered in sick all around her head. And I was like, my heart went out to her. I just felt so sad that had happened, and we didn't know. And uh, the first thing I did without thinking was put the lamp on, whip her out, get her changed, sort the, sort the, the sheets out, called Hannah, got her up. And I was thinking, if it was someone else's child, um, <laughs> if it was someone else's child, I wouldn't be uh, forgetting myself in the same way as I was in those moments. I'd be thinking about how this is affecting me, the impact, you know, this is someone else is sick and this is pretty gross. And, uh, but I wasn't thinking that. I just got my hands dirty, got her in, in the bath, got her cleaned. And um, when you love someone, you, you just forget about yourself. You, you just do. Because and it's not difficult. It's not an effort. And it's a bit of a trivial illustration because a child being sick isn't, isn't in the same league as the, the kind of trials that Paul's experiencing here and, and that we experience in our lives. But you get the point. That Paul forgets about himself because his mind is full of someone else. He forgets about himself because he loves Jesus. Because he knows Jesus. And because he cares about Jesus and he cares about the cause of Jesus and he cares about telling others about Jesus. And that's what his whole life is focused on. Because he's got a relationship with Jesus, a real and living and vibrant relationship with Jesus. It's someone he knows personally and someone he loves. He says in chapter 3, later on, we'll come to it in a few weeks, he says, everything in my life, everything I valued, I consider it a loss compared to the, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And even that's not enough for him. He says in a couple of verses time, and I want to know him more in the power of his re- resurrection and, and sharing in his sufferings. Paul's found something. He's found someone that is so uh, compelling and so beautiful and so intriguing and there's so much depth to him that he says the best thing in my life, in fact, the only thing in my life, is, is knowing him. And the only thing I want to do is know him more and help other people to know him more. Jesus just fills Paul's mind and his heart. And as a result, he just takes over his life. And Paul's able to say, for me to to live is Christ and to die is gain because I get to go and be with him. And, And here's the thing I want us to take away. That Jesus that Paul knew is the same Jesus we can know. And the relationship Paul had with Jesus is the same relationship we can have with Jesus the same relationship that he invites us into there's the same beauty the same incredible attractiveness in G- the Jesus that Paul knew in the Jesus we have to us uh, offered to us uh, in in the bible the same incredible uh, sacrificial love that that wins our hearts the same depths to explore and i just wonder if the reason that jesus doesn't fill our lives in the way that he filled Paul's life is because we don't really believe he's that satisfying. We don't really believe he's that good. And maybe that's because we haven't really tasted and seen how good he is. But if we did, and the more that we do, the more that we taste of Jesus, the more we'll find him taking over. The more we'll find him filling our lives, the more we explore of him, the more we get to know him, the more we see his love and care for us in the details of our lives, the more we will be able to say with Paul, to to live is Christ. And we will begin to forget ourselves, even in the trials, even in the hard times. And we will begin to find that whatever our situation, whatever's going on, whatever news we hear, whatever happens in our day, we will find this true and deep and lasting joy that Paul speaks of here. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the depths and the riches that are in him. Thank you that he is the bread of life who satisfies, that he is the water that when we drink we will never thirst again. May we find our true satisfaction and true delight in him. And as we do, Father God, I pray that you would so fill our hearts and our minds with him that we would forget about ourselves. And we would begin to know this true joy that that lasts, this joy that is there whatever happens, whatever we go through. Uh, This joy that will spill out to the world around us. Amen.